and welcome to The Business, providing a guardian machine to Pestonian insight, and with better music too. Coming up this week, we'll analyse yet another bonus scandal at RBS and a wider backlash against Fat Cat Pay. Plus, is Britain's economic reputation on the line? We'll discuss whether the country's about to pay the price for its ever-expanding deficit. And, as the world's favourite airline makes its worst ever loss, we ask, is British Airways Chief Exec Willie Walsh heading for the departure gate? Buckle up as we prepare for takeoff. I'm Edith Chakraborty and this is The Business from The Guardian. Okay, let me quickly check in this week's panel. Deborah Hargreaves is The Guardian's business editor. Does that mean you always turn left when you get on an aircraft, Deborah? I've never turned left. I've always turned right. I'm a woman of the people. I'm sure you would know that. (laughs) You sit with a cattle. (laughs) I do. They're not paying you enough. Heather Stewart is the Observer's Economics Editor. Hi. Will you be having chicken or the fish, Heather? Uh, Definitely the fish. (laughs) Brave woman. And making his debut here, here in the pod, it's Dan Milmo, our transport correspondent. Let me ask you, Mr Milmo, is the purpose of this trip business or pleasure? Uh, Always business. (laughs) Okay, we're not mad. There was a reason for those rather laboured introductions. We'll get onto the mixed fortunes in the airline industry shortly. But let's start this week a bit closer to home with a bit of doom and gloom. Now then, the bankers have enjoyed a blissful fortnight where they've been replaced by MPs as the public's bete noire. But bosses at the Royal Bank of Scotland have found themselves in hot water again this week over the bailed out bank's new bonus scheme. Shares worth £5 million have been awarded to four senior members of RBS, including new chief executive Stephen Hester. The largest award went to Ellen Alimony, who runs the bank's US business division. She's received almost 6 million shares, which translates to about 2.5 million quid. Deborah, this is a bank that's 70% owned by the taxpayer. This stinks, doesn't it? Here we are again talking about banking excess and bonuses and executive pay. It really does stink. I mean, this happens... I think the banks are still in denial. They are giving out bonuses um, for performance. Their argument, obviously, is that they're competing in an international market for talent. They say they can't hold on to their best people unless they pay bonuses. They're making some attempt to link these with performance. So these share awards will not vest for three years. So they will be um, linked to performance over that time. Um, They're also paying bonuses to some of their traders, Um, They say they're losing a lot of people to other banks. Barclays in particular is hiring lots of traders and using this downturn and the difficulties at the nationalised banks to pick up some good traders. I think the banks still don't realise that times have changed. You know, part of the MPs, um, the public anger over MPs' expenses is a continuation of this um, feeling of outrage against the banks and businessmen for paying themselves too much, getting us into this economic situation. People have had enough of this. Shareholders are finally waking up to the fact that they can um, exert some influence. The government, as a major shareholder in RBS, has to move and to stop them from paying these large um, awards. Dan, in this case, the majority shareholder is us, the public. Do you think this could take off as a political issue? I think it certainly could. I mean, uh, Debbie's comments remind me of a a comment made by John Stewart on The Daily Show when he was uh, watching a clip by John Thane, the former chief executive of Merrill Lynch, and he said, you don't understand, we need to pay these bonuses in order to retain best people. And John Stewart said, you have no best people. (laughs) And I think... 
thing down at Network Rail, isn't it? Had the same, yeah. They've had the same same problems there. Ian Couch is still getting a bonus, isn't No, it? Ian Couch has agreed to forego his bonus because, uh, I mean, the situation with Network Rail is, um, I think that genuinely, uh, I think that could have caused a lot of public outcry as soon as, um, if he had accepted the bonus. Because, why, why do you think that? Because Network Rail has no competition. I mean, it's a monopoly. One of the the rationale partly behind a bonus is because you know being rewarded for competing against your rivals and delivering uh, and great results, performing very well. Network Rail has no performance benchmark because it's the monopoly provider of, of rail infrastructure in the UK. So it's difficult to. I mean, you could judge them against Deutsche Bahn or SNCF, but they're very different networks. It doesn't that kind of underline how much more broadly this whole culture has spread than the banking sector? This is something that, that you know has become absolutely rife in the financial services sector, but so many other kinds of industries have adopted this same approach of you know for some reason if we want to reward people, their basic salary is not enough. We have to give them a huge chunk on top of it, and there's become a, a very strong expectation that you're basic salary is, is not what you're paid for doing your job. You, you get a whole extra amount on top of that. And, and actually what the banking crisis tells us is that that doesn't necessarily deliver any improvements in your performance whatsoever. But it, it's something becoming that's become incredibly widespread, I think. That's right, isn't it, Debbie? I mean, it's not just RBS. You, we, we read today about the huge bonus scheme that, uh, that Martin Solwood's got at WPP. Last week, there was a big shareholder revolt at Shell. Um, it's it's a culture that may have started in financial services, but it's spread more widely across businesses and not just even big businesses. I think it's quite common now in small, mid-sized businesses as well. Well, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, this feeling that you cannot just be paid a salary for doing your job, but you need something else extra on top has completely gained ground. And and um, because it's the recession and the downturn, those performance targets that are built into your pay awards are being changed um, by remuneration committees. That's what happened at Shell. Shell ended up fourth out of um, four out of its major competitors, whereas the share awards were linked to it coming third in in a group of its cohorts so they um, because it didn't quite fit um they they changed changed the targets they changed them so i mean you know that's happening more and more in the recession because people people can't meet their targets and so that completely makes a mockery of linking these bonuses to to performance and it shows you that executives are thinking of them like mps are thinking of their expenses as part of their salary as part of their overall package and something they deserve regardless. Okay, we've got MPs, we've got bankers and we've got business people. When did this culture of you must pay me more, runaway pay, when did this start to bed down in in our country? You know, if you remember before 97, the Labour Party made very clear that they were absolutely happy for the richest to get richer. The the flip side of that being, and, you know, therefore society to get more unequal, the flip side of that being that that's what you needed to do to deliver a successful, modern, flexible economy, you know, that would compete on the world stage. And that whole argument, let's not bother about equality because what's really important is economic performance, has been blown out of the water by the the massive financial crisis and and the recession that we found ourselves in. I think there's, there's, there's some very kind of broad political arguments here that, that are, are, you know, are going to run and run over the next few years. Just th- thinking about this, you've mentioned Obama, uh, well, America, uh, John Stewart, but I'm thinking about Obama and what the administration there have started to say about banks' bonuses. I mean, is it time for a radical rethink? Should we actually be having salary caps, salary caps at our nationalised banks? Um, yeah, I, I think it's difficult to impose a salary cap because then you will find very um, inventive accountants who or pay consultants who Not will... Not banks as scrutinised as RBS and Lloyd's uh, HBOS are now, surely. Nationalised banks. Um, 
Yeah, I mean, why not? Um, I think um, when you talk to the execs at RBS, they are concerned about government involvement because they're worried about holding on to their traders. And they say that, you know, they can go to other banks who are still prepared to pay them a bonus. And if they're going to compete in that market, they want to carry on paying them. Whether they should be competing in that market is a completely different question. I mean, this idea about separating casino banking from general retail banking, I think, is a good one. And I don't think RBS should actually be in investment banking. Heather, what would you do about clamping down on pay? Would you at all? I think where the government is a, is a shareholder and is a majority shareholder, it absolutely has a right to look very, very closely at what's happening and to say, no, you won't pay bonuses. And, it, you know, where you do, you will claw them back if they turn out to have been uh, earned on the basis of very risky decisions and so on. I think salary caps are very difficult. But I think more broadly, what's happened in the banking sector is going to mean that pay simply will not be as high as it has been over the last decade or so. I mean, contemporaries of mine who left university when I did, who went into that sector, have made extraordinary it's it's been an absolutely golden age they've made an extraordinary sum of money and i think that will simply not be available because the profits are going to be lower the sector's going to be smaller it's, it's going to be a very I, different um, world can i have my my suggestion again i said it last time <laughs> what's your suggestion pay. we should have trade union members on the board particularly on the remuneration yeah. committee yeah so that yeah. you'd need to get a bit of sense into it might also it. Needs, uh, it might also need the involvement of trade unions because i think at the moment any politician trying to set pay levels at any company because of the expenses scandal is going to be mm. discredited there's a bit of a moral issue there but, yeah. but i mean unfortunately people can turn around and say well on earth can you determine what our pay should be when you've been ripping off the taxpayer yourselves for years okay well you can follow all the news and analysis about rbs and fat cat pay at guardian.co.uk slash business well it seems the problems for the government just keep getting worse and worse Leaving aside the ongoing expenses row, the state of our public finances has led a top credit rating agency to revise its outlook for the UK economy. Standard & Poor's downgraded its view of the UK to negative from stable for the first time in over 30 years. That change came as new data confirmed that government borrowing soared to a record £8.5 billion in April. S&P also said there was a 1 in 3 chance that Britain's AAA credit rating on its sovereign debt may be cut. Heather, what does that actually mean if Britain were to lose its AAA rating? Well, in a sense, it's it's sort of official confirmation of something that we already know, which is that given the scale of the banking crisis and... We're all screwed. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Given the scale of the banking crisis and the bailouts that we've had to do, given the, the massive collapse in tax revenues as a result of the recession, you know, Britain has vast and growing public deficits and we're going to have a fiscal problem for a long time to come. Um, I, the fact that we, if we do have our rating downgraded, there's a potential that it could increase the cost of that the government, the interest rate effectively that the government has to pay on its debt. Although that also depends on the appetite of investors in the markets for Britain's debt. And actually, given that, for example, banks are going to be told to hold an awful lot more liquid assets, and that's going to include bonds. Um, you know, there could be a huge market for these things, regardless of what S&P thinks. And, you know, we also have to remember that these ratings agencies are the ones who are giving triple A ratings to um, but great bundles of securitised mortgages, which turn out to be worth virtually nothing. Um, but I mean, the, the broader issue is, is really that it's, it's an embarrassment. It's another huge embarrassment. The government set much store by its sort of prestige in the international markets and, and you know, by, uh, you know, our fiscal management and so on. And it's just a, another kind of rubber stamp on the fact that we, we are, the public finances are going to be in a terrible mess for a very, very long time. Deborah? As you so poetically put it, we're all screwed. So, so what, what, I mean, who actually believes these AAA ratings anyway? 
Well, it's quite interesting, actually, the, the credit rating agencies. As Heather says, these were the, they were discredited in the financial crisis for giving very high ratings to all these this junk that's floating around the system now. And you have to look at the slightly perverse incentives um, because the person who's rated, i.e. the company or the country that's rated, pays for that rating. rating. Yeah. So it's in their interest to give them what they want to hear. Nevertheless, they do carry a huge amount of weight. And if you get your rating downgraded, you do have difficulties borrowing in the international market. That may not be the case for Britain because people want to hold our debt. Um, and a lot of pension funds um, have got little choice but to hold on to it. But, for example, Ireland has seen its rating downgraded from AAA, top-notch rating. And that gives it far less room for manoeuvre in the international market it may, makes a v- investors far less keen to hold it onto its um, borrowing onto its debt and uh, gives it less scope for maneuver dan heather mentioned there that this was a quite a big political embarrassment for gordon brown who spent 10 years prior to the financial crisis crowing about how well he was managing the economy the tories have been sounding alarm bells about the rising level of our public debt for months now for for ever since we began talking about fiscal stimulus do you think pe- that message is sort of hitting home with the public or do you think they're still more worried about unemployment and more immediate stuff than this sort of greater macro picture well just anecdotally being at the uh, cbi dinner last week um and seeing gordon brown's speech and the reaction uh, to it from um well over a thousand businessmen it was kind of like watching a a stand-up um, die on on stage. Um, his positive message about you know the fact we're going to manage our, our way out of it. There's short-term losses. It was quite clear. I was just looking around constantly during the speech that the entire room didn't buy it. So yes, I would imagine the public it will sink into the public, particularly when it begins to affect their day-to-day lives in um, in, in quite direct ways. I mean, obviously going back to the the hat I wear normally, uh, transport network rail which runs the rail infrastructure, Transport for London, which carries billions of journeys around London uh, every year. They can have a lot of financial problems if there is a a downgrade of UK PLC because they're both facing funding gaps. If those funding gaps aren't closed, then services will at some point be affected over the next four years. So Joe or um, Janet Bloggs trying to get on the tube or an overcrowded rail carriage will will notice the the debt problem affecting their lives. But Heather, that's the sort of the debt rating side of of things, but Mm. Sterling seems to be doing quite well at the moment for one. Well, I think the question with Sterling, I mean, I've I've thought for a while that the sell-off in Sterling was probably a bit overdone Overdone. because where... Where else, you know, what else is it you want to buy if you're selling sterling? Do you buy euros? Well, we've already talked about Ireland and the problems happening there. You know, Spain's in a massive recession. Italy's in, in a huge recession. Um, and even Germany, the biggest, Eurozone's biggest economy, has is, is, got terrible economic figures coming out of it. They're having a dreadful time at the moment. Um, do you buy the dollar? Well, arguably, you know, some of the comments in the markets are that, that actually the US is has just as bad fiscal figures as, as the UK. And it's politically harder for S&P and other ratings agencies to downgrade the US and that's the only reason reason they haven't done so. So, you know, the question about Sterling's weakness would be, well, what else are you going to buy instead? And nothing out there looks looks great at the moment, I don't think. Okay. If you have anything to say on this, post your comment on our blog at guardian.co.uk slash the business. Now then, lie back in your seats and relax. Yes, it's been a bad seven days for the self-styled world's favourite airline. 
British Airways posted a loss of over £400 million, its biggest deficit since privatisation in 1978. The catastrophic figures are symptomatic of a widespread decline in the airline industry, and in terms of BA's own fortunes, the future of controversial chief exec Willie Walsh has once again been cast into doubt. Dan, you're our transport correspondent. Just how bad are these figures of BA? Um, they were very bad, and indeed, uh, the pre-tax loss of £401 million was um, double some analyst expectations, so it was actually a bit of a shock when the numbers came out. I think the the main problem for BA, if you want to take a uh, sort of more constructive view of a, a terrible loss, is that their strategy is uh, predicated on uh, premium passengers, and uh, uh, which is industry jargon for essentially businessmen, uh, sorry, business people who uh, on the company account fly first class, business class or premium economy, mainly uh, across the Atlantic. That's their main route, Heathrow to New York. Well, um, as Woody uh, Walsh has admitted, uh, at one point after the Lehman Brothers collapsed last September, apparently no bankers flew whatsoever on BA. Things have picked up a bit. It's not that bad. But um, the entire strategy is, is beached on the global recession. And yet we've had Virgin Atlantic this week come out with rather good figures. Um, and one of the big differences between the two of those seems to be a bet on oil prices. BA bet one way, Virgin bet the other. I think... Virgin's results um, are, are slightly helped by the fact that they're a privately owned company, so I don't think they have to be as stark in the way they they account for things as as BA does. But yeah, you can certainly um, benefit from playing the fuel market slightly better. I mean, Ryanair, bizarrely, you know, the world's most profitable airline, basically, is utterly fouled up its its fuel hedging is, um, but it's still doing comparatively okay because. Unlike uh, Virgin and BA, it doesn't rely on, on big paying passengers. You know, but, but is Virgin getting those premium passengers that BA isn't? Business passengers worldwide are down by around 20% and have been since, um, since January. So it's, it's highly unlikely that Virgin Atlantic has been able to buck that trend completely this year. Anyway, in fact, uh, I believe they've omitted the heading for a loss this year because mm-hmm. you, just, you just can't push against the, a market that's um, deteriorating so much. They just can't wring any gains out of it. Do the business class passengers effectively cross-subsidise cut-priced holidaymakers? Is that how it works? Or? Oh, actually, there's some good news there. Uh, <laughs> BA's strategy was to wring as much money out of possible out of those who really, really need to fly, mm. um, i.e. You know, the, the premium passengers. However, they admitted last week it's not working because there's just not enough of them. So um, their fares, which are um, in the industry jargon yields, um, have been falling over the past few months and are mm. expected to fall um, this year or at least remain flat. So I don't think you're going to see many airlines in general pushing up fares at all over this year. So it's we're just going to get possible. some bargains then, are we, Dan? Yeah, there will be. I mean, BA's been uh, running these incredible offers, and I believe Virgin has as well, of, of offering business class fares of two to one, uh, two for one business class fares, which is just unbelievable. That mm. that really is um, uh, unthinkable two that years ago. That is pounds. I mean, that's mm. my holiday set, isn't it? Yeah, fingers, fingers crossed. Basically, but let's just think, let's just think a bit about Willie Walsh because first there was the the terminal at Heathrow. Mm-hmm. Now there's terminal this five, yeah. terrible, terrible set of figures. I mean, he's agreed to waive his pay. For, for, for one a month. month. July. Yeah, for one month. July, one with month. His, for one with month. his finance director. Let's yeah. not get carried away here. <laughs> He's agreed to waive his pay for a month. Would that placate shareholders or is he effectively toast? No, I don't think waiving your pay for one month will placate shareholders. He did, I mean, I believe he, he retained his job after the Terminal 5 fiasco by actually waiving his bonus um, last year. Mm. He, um, purely on ethical grounds, he did say, look, um, because of the furore, I entirely understand and agree with the fact that I should waive my bonus for this year. So um, that probably went some way to saving his job after the Terminal 5 fiasco. This time round, um, 
yeah, his job is going to be under enormous pressure because the strategy is not working or it has not worked over the past year. You can say that, um, like other airlines, BA has been completely sideswiped by the scale of the recession, but they are going to need to uh, change tack. Is there anyone out there who can do that? I mean, the airline industry does tend to appoint airline executives. Um, I'm just trying to think if there's anyone out there who can pull uh, British Airways in a different direction. Michael O'Leary? Well, Michael (laughs) O'Leary... I think Irishman. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think. Uh, I think in the slightly rarefied atmosphere of uh, of uh, the British politics and media, I'm not sure if uh, Michael O'Leary would really survive um, <laughs> as the boss of BA. You know, do, meeting do, the Queen and all that. Do you uh, think it becomes it's becoming less ethical <clears throat> to fly as well? I mean, isn't this combining with a high oil price um, to mean the future's pretty bleak for most airlines? I think people have yet to be shamed into changing their travelling habits. I do, I mean, having covered transport for the past three years and seen the environment become a major issue, I really don't think people are refusing to fly because um, because it's seen as uh, endangering uh, dolphins. The main, the main reason why global air traffic numbers are plummeting, and they really are, is because people cannot afford it. Well... On that note, it's time for us to fly. If you want to have your say on any of our topics, post your comment on our blog at guardian.co.uk slash the business. My thanks to the panel, Deborah Hargreaves, Heather Stewart and Dan Milmo, our producers Ben Green, I'm Adit Chakraborty and that was The Business.